1: it gives me a lot of hope.
2: If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9.
1: Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to
2: Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Late in the morning on February 6, 1996, George Bryant and Oscar Bridges were at Bryant's Kansas City home. According to four-year-old Kayla Bryant, her father invited in three men dressed in black whom she had seen at the house two days earlier. It's believed that they were there for a drug deal. While the men were in the kitchen, Kayla heard a gunshot. Her father fell, and Oscar Bridges ran into the basement where he was later discovered bound, gagged, and shot twice in the head. While the men searched the house, George tried to run, was shot, and bled out in the snow. The three men sped off in a white Oldsmobile. Police received anonymous tips naming 10 men as suspects, including men who knew George Bryant, Gary Goodspeed Sr. and Jr., Marcus Merrill, and Ricky Kidd. With an alibi that included a trip to the sheriff's office and not being identified by Kayla, Ricky was released after recording a video lineup. Weeks later, George Bryant's neighbor Richard Harris was arrested while on parole. In exchange for leniency, he offered a description of the crime that was inconsistent with all other witnesses, along with an ever-growing confidence in his identification of Ricky Kidd. Despite evidence that mostly pointed toward Merrill and both Goodspeeds, authorities decided to prosecute Ricky on the strength of an incentivized informant and against the protest of the four-year-old witness, sending Ricky away for life without parole. This is Wrongful conviction. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. Today, you are going to hear from a guy who I'm really actually in awe of. I've heard him on the radio, on on podcasts. I've heard him on different platforms. I've read about him. He's somebody that everyone in the innocence movement respects and admires. He carries himself in a way that I think is just uh, inspiring. I don't know how else to say it. And I'm going to introduce the man right now. And so, Ricky Kidd, welcome to Wrongful Conviction. Yeah, Thank you, Jason. Appreciate it. I'm so glad you're here. Of course, I'm sorry you're here because the reason you're here is the miserable nightmare you had to live through. But before we get into all of that, Ricky, let's go back like they do in the movies when it gets all foggy. And, and let's time travel <laughs> back. What was your life like growing up? Would you call it a happy childhood? Unfortunately, like many of the individuals
4: who find themselves... On the wrong side of the law, wrongfully convicted. There was some poverty issues. I grew up smart. I was always two grades above in reading and math. I was innocent of the woes of the world, the ills, the injustices of the world at that time. And I was a mama's boy. My name is Ricky, my mother's name is Vicky, and my sister's name is Nikki. So it was Nikki, Ricky, and Vicky. My father never showed up, Jason. He for one reason or another, he decided not to participate in my life. And then in 1988, 1989, my mother fell into crack cocaine addiction and my sister, we had different fathers. So she went and stayed with her father's family and my mother went into her addiction in the streets and I was left essentially homeless.
3: Wow. That's actually quite the opposite of a happy childhood. And it's my understanding that the situation you found yourself in led you to come to know both the eventual victims and the assailants in this case. In fact, you, you knew the Goodspeed so well that people confused you for family. I grew up next door to Gary
4: Goodspeed Jr. We became friends and then start calling each other's cousins. As we got older, then I would call his mother auntie. I would call his daddy uncle. Essentially, when my mother went AWOL and went into her addiction, his family actually took me in. Um, I had an ultimatum from the Good speech was you're going to have to find a way to pay your way. So at a young age, I was introduced to selling crack cocaine and the older guys would give me a $100 pack, five dollars dollars rocks. And if I sold all 100 of them, I could keep 20. Um, the idea was, little Ricky, if you get caught, see you a juvenile, you can't get into any trouble, so it just made sense to me with the cards that my life had dealt me at that time to do so thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen uh I was still this you know small time drug dealer as we became older and I began to find my own way in this world. Our pathways began to go in different directions when it came to. February 6, 1996. The Good Speeds would
3: not have been considered friends. They would not really have even been considered associates. And earlier on, your connection to drugs put you in touch with the victim in this case, George Bryant, who was also involved in that same lifestyle. And while your path diverged from the Good Speeds, you had three children, Jasmine, Raven, and Austin. Now, you were supplementing your income, still selling drugs, and eventually that put you on the radar of the local police.
4: Yeah, I would have been known to the police. So the idea that you can be a street guy, a hustler, it was good enough for them to say, you might as well be a murderer. It's all the same to them. That's what what you do, right? You sell drugs, you kill each other, you're robbing, but that just wasn't the case. I wasn't violent at all. I had um, a drug conviction. I was arrested in October of 1995. Drugs was found in a rental car, and so I popped on their radar there, just months before the commission of the homicide in February of 1996.
3: Just in time, of course, for your mugshot to be available for a photo lineup. So, let's talk about the crime itself. So, like you said, it was it's February 6, 1996. This happened just before noon. And from the account of George's daughter, Kayla, who was watching TV and having a Happy Meal, ironically, uh, it looks like George had invited three men into the house, we believe, to make some sort of a drug deal. Kayla had seen the men, though, two days before when they had come by the house. She described one as fat and another skinny. Now, on the day of the crime, the men had come through the garage. They were dressed in black, and now they were all in the kitchen with George and a guy named Oscar Bridges. Kayla heard a gun go off, and her father fell to the ground. Then Oscar ran down to the basement. One of the men followed Oscar, whose body was later discovered bound, gagged, and shot twice in the head. The other two men searched George's pockets, and while they searched the rest of the house, George tried to run but was shot. He tragically bled out, laying in the snow outside like a horror scene. Kayla said the quote, fat one, came back in and told her it was going to be all right. Then the three men got into a white sedan and peeled off. Police arrived at 11.50 a.m. and found Kayla still on the phone with the 911 dispatcher. Police received various anonymous tips, uh, naming 10 different suspects, including Marcus Merrill, and then also Derry Goodspeed, senior and junior, and then of course you, Ricky. So investigators put together a photo lineup for Kayla that included you, Merrill, And Goodspeed Jr. And get this, Kayla only picked out Merrill. Now, like you said, you were no longer associated with these guys, but you were still listed with the police as known associates. And so when the double homicide had taken place,
4: unbeknownst to my lawyers and I at the time that the real killers, Goodspeed Sr., Jr., and Merrill had uh, not only committed the crime and fled, but to buy them some time and some space they called Chip's hotline and said that Ricky Kidd had something to do with this homicide. And so that's how I end up popping up on their radar in the first place. They picked me up on February 14th, 1996, interrogating me for about five or six hours. I participated in a, a photo lineup, a video
3: lineup. And they arrested Monica, your girlfriend, at that time as well. They separated you and interrogated you both. And your stories matched perfectly. Yes, correct. And the stories are pretty compelling. They they could have easily verified these stories, right? Which was that on the morning of the crime, you had agreed to watch your nephew, right? Mm -hmm. While your sister was at work. And then in that same morning that this crime took place, you and Monica and the little guy, DJ, had gone to Nikki's office to pick up your car and then stopped at McDonald's and went to the Jackson County Sheriff's Office. Okay. Imagine that. Imagine. I that. mean, how, how good of an alibi do you need? Nah. And this is the Sheriff's Office at Lake Giacomo where you applied for a gun permit. So, I mean, it, it, that's it, right? No more investigation is necessary than to just do those very basic things and go check the videotape at McDonald's. Go check and see if, in fact, you were at the sheriff's office. They would have a record of that. Obviously, if you apply for a gun permit. Now, you agreed to stand in a videotape lineup, allowed police to search the car and belongings, and I got to go back to the fact that you and your and Monica, your stories matched exactly. Now, if you were lying since you were separated, there's no chance that those stories would have matched. Not at all. It seems like initially when they first arrested you, they basically acknowledged that you weren't the guy. And they had let me go. They said it, at the time it
4: appeared that somebody was throwing my name in a hat trying to shuffle things around, and they released me February 15th. In my mind, there was no frame of reference at that time in 1996 for me to even understand that I was in trouble. A, I'm innocent. B, you can clearly go verify that that I'm innocent in my whereabouts at the time of the crime. And they did not pursue that.
3: Now, they go and they decide they're going to test six pairs of your shoes. And they compared them to shoe prints that were found in the kitchen. There was one shoe print that was found on a piece of bread. And the other one was in blood on linoleum. And your shoes, as well as the shoes of the victims, were excluded as the source of the prints. You don't have to be Sherlock Holmes here ladies and gentlemen, right? So they also, at the same time, though, began to investigate Merrill, Goodspeed Jr., and Goodspeed Sr. All of them, interestingly enough, lived in Georgia, where Merrill and Goodspeed Jr. shared an apartment. Now, get this, airline records showed that the three men had flown from Atlanta to Kansas City a few days prior to the murders and stayed at Adams Mark Hotel before returning to Georgia after the murders. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Alamo rent the car records showed that Goodspeed Sr. rented a You guessed it, a white Oldsmobile, which fit the description, the real descriptions of the getaway car. And Goodspeed Senior's fingerprint was found on a Carmex lip balm wrapper with a price tag from a good to go store, one of which was a block and a half from Brian's home. Again, these are clues that are starting to really add up. I mean, that would be a crazy set of coincidences. Could happen. But okay, so then on March 11th, 1996, Richard Harris, who lived near Mr. Bryant, was arrested on a parole violation. Want to take us through this part, Ricky?
4: Yeah, this individual you're talking about, Richard Harris, was an alleged witness to the commission of the crime, and he had a parole violation. He was brought in, and detectives had already received a call that he might have some information as it related to to the double homicide. And so when he go into the police station for his parole violation, homicide brings him down. They begin to interrogate him and that's where they receive their first cooperating or what I like to call coerced witness. And so the opportunity was ripe for him to receive some type of favor in exchange for information, even if it was inaccurate information to get himself back out of the trouble that he found himself in. And so what detectives done uh, to help facilitate that was they showed Richard Harris a single photo of me first. And Richard Harris said, I cannot say that was him. Then they showed him a five man photo spread and lo and behold, who's the fifth man in the five man photo spread the same guy he just saw on a single photo. So then he said, I think I think that's the guy they said, but you can't be sure. He said, no, I can't be sure. So they said, okay, let's go into this other room where they show him the video lineup. All the faces change except for Ricky kid. So at this stage, he went from the single Polaroid. I'm not sure the five man photo spread. It may be number five to the video lineup. He became 2001% sure that Ricky kid was the guy that he saw despite describing everything contrary to what the police began to collect or report on the evidence. For example, all witnesses said that there was three men. They uh, hopped in a white late model Oldsmobile. They backed down the street that they all had on ski masks and black trench coats. Richard Harris described uh, one of them without a coat on at all, one with a brown coat, and that they didn't back up. They actually went forward, and they was not in a late model Oldsmobile. They was in a Nissan
3: Stanza. And so early on, he's getting key facts wrong. This guy obviously didn't see it, but nonetheless, on May 22nd, 1996, a few months after this awful crime, we were arrested again. They came, and they uh, pulled their guns
4: as I was driving away from my apartment. Made me stop the car. I was surrounded by squad and police and detectives. Uh, my girlfriend Monica Gray, at the time she was with me, made us put our hands up, and they slapped those cold handcuffs on us and took us down to the police station. And I'm thinking in my mind, what didn't they understand the first time? It's gonna be yet another inconvenience because I'm moving. You're gonna. Ma- I'm just gonna be late. I'm going to be late. I'm not going to go to prison. Innocent people don't go to prison. I'm just about to be hassled, um, let go. And they once again realize that they have the wrong person. I
3: had no previous experience with our uh, justice system. You told Detective Jay Pruding that you were with Monica all day and that whoever identified you must have confused you with somebody else, quite possibly your uncle, Gary Goodspeed Sr. But nonetheless... You and Merrill were charged with the murders. Take us to what happens over the next month when when you reached out to this detective, right?
4: I was letting them know through the whole time that I was in a county jail. I had no bond, um, that I was innocent. First, I did not know why they would think I would be guilty. So I had to wait for my discovery. Once I was able to receive the police reports, about 600 pages. Maybe a hundred and fifty of them was keeping everything that they collected together. Maybe about fifty or sixty pages was related to me, but the rest of the six hundred pages were all related to the goodspeed and those clues and the dots that connected them to being involved in the commission of this crime. and so, as I received my discovery in the county jail, I was smart enough as a novice as a regular citizen to see. That you are barking up the wrong tree. And how can you possibly not see this as seasoned detectives? Unless you are purposely trying to send the wrong person to prison. So I would reach out. my, My sister would reach out. I would get on the phone. My lawyers would tell me, might I advise you, don't talk to the detectives. And I heard her. I was smart enough to understand the basis of that. But in my mind, I'm thinking an innocent man can never get himself in any trouble. He's innocent. So I would not listen and I would call the detectives and I would, uh, wrestle with them over the phone till they one day came and picked me up and brought me over to headquarters. And I had about 25, 30 minutes to articulate their case back to them. And man, you ought to seen they, I wish that was recorded. You ought to seen their faces. I mean, I was a young Perry Mason, if you will. Um, and I'm kind of being funny, but serious, I was really laying out. Like, this is how you're making a mistake and answer why this and why that. Gary Goodspeed Jr. was picked up by the detectives and asked, what time did George Bryant die? And Gary Goodspeed Jr. says in this police report, he died at 1147 or 1146. Who else would know that other than the killer? It was never reported in papers. It was never reported in the news. It was never reported anywhere else. In fact, the detective asked him, how do you know that? Good speed, Junior. He said, my dad told me. So he, I, he would have been better off saying I, I read it in the newspaper and we could try to find that newspaper that did not exist. But the news at that time had not reported the time of death. So how would you know? So it was these things. It was these glaring facts that I was challenging the detectives with. And they got so frustrated. You know, usually they put us in the pigeon box, so to speak, when they get us in there. But I had them in the pigeon box uh, so much so that they called it off. One of the uh, leading sergeants said, get him out of here and don't bring me back over here again.
3: This episode is underwritten by AIG, a leading global insurance company. AIG is committed to corporate social responsibility and is making a positive difference in the lives of its employees and in the communities where we work and live. In light of the compelling need for pro bono legal assistance and in recognition of AIG's commitment to criminal and social justice reform, the AIG pro bono program provides free legal services and other support to underrepresented communities and individuals.
4: The prosecutor, Amy McGowan, wanted to talk to Gary Goodspeed Sr. and wanted to talk to Gary Goodspeed Jr. I was making too much of a fuss that I was innocent and that they were guilty according to the evidence that they have in their possession. And so the prosecutor's office worked to get Gary Goodspeed Sr. and Gary Goodspeed Jr. to participate in sworn depositions. And by the way, Gary Goodspeed Sr. and Gary Goodspeed Jr. was Marcus Murrow's alibi witness Marcus Merle and I were charged Marcus Merle is saying I was not with Ricky Kidd I was with Gary Goodspeed Sr. and I was with Gary Goodspeed Jr. and Gary Goodspeed Sr. and Jr. is saying yeah what Marcus Merle said we was with him and we were not with Ricky Kidd and so they reported to Amy McGowan's office for a sworn deposition Marcus Murrow lawyers was there detectives were summonsed to be there to read them their Miranda rights. Why would you be reading these law-abiding citizens their Miranda rights if you did not have an indication that these were your guilty men? And so everybody was there except for Ricky Kidd's representation, Teresa Anderson. Now, by law, since this was a joint trial, all parties must be summoned together. You cannot take a deposition outside of the presence of the other parties of individuals that was involved. We was unaware that Goodspeed Sr. and Jr. were being deposed of in Amy the Prosecutor's office. During the deposition, they swore under oath that they was not with Ricky Kidd, further proof that I was innocent, and that they were indeed with Marcus Merle, uh, and with each other, and they further went to collaborate evidence that suggested they did it. So police already had this 500 page of police reports, um, that some of the spots and dots were already there. And what these two individuals did in a sworn deposition in the prosecutor's office is basically connect themselves to those spots and dots. What happened was Amy McGowan, she would have had to realize that she indeed at this point, emphatically is holding the wrong person in the Jackson County jail across the street and the real killers is sitting in her office. What did she decide to do? She said, escort these individuals out of here and let them go and proceeded knowing that she was sending the wrong person to prison. And just one more little caveat to add to that. Not only did she not invite my legal team to the depositions, but she also hid the fact that it even existed in the first place. Those transcripts of those depositions were printed, were created, and they was buried. Buried as if it never exists. It was only years later that Professor Sean O'Brien in the Midwest Innocence Project was able to find those hidden and buried uh, depositions. And we were able to present them to a court and prove emphatically to the court that Amy McGowan withheld key evidence, and she did it maliciously.
3: What the fuck is wrong with these people? You're yeah. absolutely right. They should have put the cuffs on them right there. They should have assigned somebody to go across the street and say, we're sorry, Mr. Kidd, this was a big misunderstanding. We wish you well. At a minimum, that's what they should have done. Yeah. But they were like, nah, let these guys go, and hope they don't go and murder anybody else. Imagine that. It's a level of evil that I think is hard for most people with any sort of a conscience to understand, but it's real because you're here to tell the story, which is a miracle in itself. You know, the National Registry of Exoneration have noted in their report
4: that 54% of wrongful convictions has a direct correlation with police and prosecutorial misconduct. 54%. I believe one of the last studies I read was that about 4% ever have any inquiry, period. No matter how egregious it is, Amy McGowan's behavior that we're talking about today was so egregious, so egregious. That nobody has come to her defense except for her lawyer. It is actually before the Missouri Supreme Court is hardly ever gone this far. This case is so serious. Her behavior is so serious that the Missouri Supreme Court, which is a very conservative court here in this region, said, no, 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 we're going to take this case up and we're going to decide what type of punishment she deserves for this injustice act that she participated in.
3: I wish I had more confidence that they're going to do the right thing, the right thing really would be to put her where you were for 23 years. Correct. Correct. I mean, I'm not an eye for an eye person by any stretch of the imagination, but you don't have to be to understand that unless and until there's real accountability, not just losing your law license, and that almost never happens either, right? There's only been five prosecutors in the history of this vast wrongful conviction universe that goes back now hundreds of years in America— There's only been five prosecutors disbarred. And, you know, one was recent in the John Huffington case in Maryland, but only five disbarred, and only two have ever gone to jail. Only two the Duke LaCrosse, Mike Nifong, he went to jail for one day. And in the Michael Morton case in Texas, a guy named Anderson went to jail for three days after putting Michael in prison for 24 years and seven months for a crime that it was proven he knew. He knew, just like they knew in your case, he didn't commit yeah. it. So here comes the trial. Jackson County. So you went to trial with Merrill, right? With I did. Mr. Merrill. And his attorneys pointed the finger at you and said that you committed the crime with the good speeds. And of course, your defense was that Merrill, Your defense, <laughs> your defense was the truth, which was that Merrill right. committed the crime with the good speeds. But truth right. had no place in this proceeding or this courtroom. And of course, we know how this plays out, but it still took another couple of twists and turns. I'm talking about little Kayla, right? Who's now maybe five years old at this point, right? This poor little child, a baby who's been through an experience that she probably, bless her heart, has probably never will recover from, It certainly hadn't recovered from at this point. So she got on the witness stand. Tell us about this. It must have been a surreal moment for you.
4: It was. And it was sad uh, what happened. They showed her a five-man photo spread. And said, can you identify the individuals that you saw at your house that day? And she pointed to number three, Marcus Merle. And they said, okay, okay, good job. Now, Now, can you point to the other person you said you saw in the house that day? And she said, no, I only saw one. I told you, I only saw one. And so they would ask the judge, can we approach? She's... She's tired. She's hungry. She's this, that, and the other. So they tried to go back over there and rehabilitate her or get her to look around the court and see if you can identify any of those individuals that you saw in your home that day. And she could not. When they further pressed her on the stand, she became even more frazzled and frustrated. And she said, I forgot. I forgot the story. I forgot the whole story. Now, given that a five-year-old can misspeak as they're learning full sentences. Um, but as adults, when people use that type of language story, it's something that's made up. It's something that's told to them. And so we don't just say that loosely. There's other evidence that support that she was told a story. Her mother admits that she was told things, that she told her daughter things. And so the idea that is coming out in trial that they, that they are trying to get this little girl to send an innocent person to prison based on what she was told, not based on what she actually may know, at least in full. So their case, rightfully so, was weak. And so they had to uh, figure out, Your Honor, can we take a quick break? Uh, and they had to figure out, how do I shore up this case? And so after they took a little 10-minute break, some wise guy on the prosecutor side said, Hey, let's call the detectives who said that she said that to them and have them to say that to the jury. And that's what they did. Jason, they brought in the homicide detectives violated a hearsay rule where I had the right to confront my witness, but my witness had said what she said. So they said, let's bring the detectives in. They came in about two or three of them took the stand And said, yeah, we know what she wasn't able to do today, but they looked to the jury, they looked to the court, they looked to the judge and said, but that's what she told us. They said that this is what happened at headquarters. She came in, we got her calm, we got her chill, and then we began to proceed with the identification process that she couldn't identify him in the photo spread. But when we showed her the video... She started shaking real bad. She she had to be consoled and controlled. Then she began to cry and say, that's him, that guy right there. That's who killed my daddy, says the police. You have recordings. You have, in fact, transcribed these recordings. And nothing, nowhere near on paper suggests that she identified me at all. Furthermore, once police said that this is what she did in trial, they testified to that. What happened at police headquarters? They said, well, then what did you do next? They said, well, we took her in the video recording room and we video recorded a statement from her. They play the video recorded statement. Not a question asked about Ricky. K- it's hard to believe. Not a question asked. Not even a question. Look, don't, they didn't have to, okay, maybe we didn't go into the weeds of it. You didn't even, you have an opportunity to memorialize a sensitive interview of a four and a half or five-year-old child. You say in the other room, this is all that she said, but when you get a chance to video record and memorialize it, you don't do it. Why don't you do it? Because it didn't happen. That's why they didn't do it. But they took those police detectives' words as uh, credible.
3: So this little five-year-old, this brave little fatherless child, tried to do the right thing, even though Mm -hmm. she probably desperately wanted to listen and and had been influenced by these people who were trying everything they could. And she must have desperately wanted to help find and bring to justice the, the person who killed her daddy and the other man in the house that day. And even then even under all that pressure she stood up and their response is to go conspire conspire to put lies upon lies and it sounds a lot like hearsay as well right cuz they're coming in going, well no but she said a different time i mean this is how that's admissible i yeah. you know yeah. I'm, I'm at a loss I mean, I don't even know why we have perjury laws if we're not going to hold these people to account for what is the most, one of the most obvious cases of perjury that anybody's ever seen. But like you said, it happens every day, all day and twice on Sunday. So then comes Richard Harris.
4: So when we talk about the state witness, Richard Harris, let me context that. There's no physical evidence connecting me to the crime. Uh, So all they had was Kayla Bryant, who we just talked about. And then what they had left was Richard Harris, this neighbor guy who was into trouble, who was looking to save his own soul. He testifies that he is 2,001% sure that it was Ricky Kidd who he saw committing the crime on that day. To help bolster his memory, I don't know if they worked with him on this, um, he called me the Terminator. How do you know so much? Because he walked like a Terminator. I guess, I don't know, a robot, I'm I'm not quite sure, but I just think it was designed to bolster his identification, that he was accurate. The problem was, I didn't walk like no Terminator. I didn't have any walk like a Terminator, but they didn't say, Ricky, can you get up and you walk? Can you demonstrate to the jury? So on the surface, it sounds like he got to be right. Because he was able to distinguish how this how this guy walks, it was designed to bolster a false testimony. Um, he gives me a beard. I'm 22 years of age at that time. I did not have a beard. He he put a beard on me. My lawyer tried to impeach him there. She did a real terrible job doing that. All photos had shown that I was clean faced. I, I couldn't have had a beard. I think they had got a photo of me just weeks before then. But this guy came in and testified that he was 2001 percent sure that I was the guy, despite getting everything else wrong about the commission of the crime. And listen to me. He didn't get one thing. Oh, I can see how he got a couple things wrong, but he got a couple things right. This state witness, Richard Harris, didn't get one thing right that all other independent neighbors were saying about what happened before and after the gunfire. But they found this guy uh,
3: credible. He lied. And he had, I mean, I'm not excusing it by any means. But he had a hell of a choice, right? He had the choice of either going back to jail, which they were threatening to throw him back to jail in the parole violation, which he obviously didn't want to do, or saying nothing, in which case they would have put him back in jail, or implicating the actual killers, and he knew exactly who they were, and putting his own life in very real danger, or pinning it on an innocent guy and walking free and just having to live with his own conscience, and he chose the easy way out. Ricky, this trial, unlike some other wrongful convictions that we've covered, where they didn't even bother to present alibi witnesses or anything like that due to either the fact that they may not have been any because maybe the person was just home asleep at the time or the fact that the attorney was just incompetent or didn't care or whatever. But in your case, you had credible alibi witnesses to refute the ridiculous false narrative that Mr. Harris was putting forward. So tell us a little about who testified in your defense.
4: Yeah, Jason, we had my stepfather testify that He came down early that morning and gave me a jump start. My sister testified that she stayed at my house, that she took my new car, that I came to her job to pick up that new car. Two of her co-workers testified that I came to her job that day as well, that they was the one who greeted me and and, and escorted me over to my sister to pick up the keys. My daughter, Jasmine, her mother, Kelly, she testified that I came out. To her house as well. And then my girlfriend at the time, Monica Gray, testified to the fullness of all of that because she was with me all day. So she was the base of all of those added testimonies of where I was throughout the fullness of the day. The gun permit, I was at the Jackson County Sheriff's Department applying for a legal handgun at the time, but they brought in a Sergeant Buffalo. Uh, He was a prosecutor's witness who did not handle the screening for that. That was not his job. And he testified that, yeah, this could have been uh, mailed in, faxed in, could have been brought in by somebody else. And so he cast serious doubt of the fact that I would have been at the sheriff's department when in fact he was wrong. It couldn't have been brought in by someone else because they require ID. It couldn't have been faxed in because it would have had a fax number at the top. And it couldn't have been mailed in because the individual wouldn't know the accuracy of the mailing system to be able to get that done. Uh, We had to later find Susan Jordan, the, the lady who actually did process that application. And she later testified in my appeals that it indeed happened the way uh, Ricky's legal team said it happened. But back to the trial, this is the evidence that we was able to put on. And unfortunately, the jury decided
3: to side with the state. And with the one guy who was far from credible against all these people who were credible and whose stories all matched up together. But okay, so now comes a moment where the jury goes out. How long were they uh, out for?
4: I think an hour,
3: 45 minutes to an hour, yeah. Wow. Okay. So they come back after 45 minutes to an hour. Did you still hold out any hope? I thought that I was going home still. I just did not believe, even through
4: all what I was saying, I did not believe that innocent people go to prison. Um, the judge told him to all rise. The verdict was read that it was uh, guilty. It was guilty on all counts. Just imagine, because uh, many of us have not lived through an earthquake. I have not, at least not the type of earthquake i'm talking about that's underneath the earth but it felt like an earthquake it just i felt my knees buckling i felt my body shaking and everything slowed down and when they started seeing guilty life without the possibility tears were so intense streaming down my face that i could not see i fell to my seat and i sobbed i sobbed so hard it was so loud My nose was rhyming every every part of my fiber and my being was devastated
0: Bean Dad The Dress 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too.
1: and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right.
4: So off to prison, I went March 24th, 1997. Potosi Correctional Center, maximum level five prison here in the state of Missouri where they house death row inmates. And I remember getting off that bus shackled to about a half a dozen to a dozen of other individuals and the officer greeting us with a salutation of gentlemen, welcome to hell. And hell it was. The cold stairs, the whistles, the stale environment. I did not know how I was going to survive. I did not have a friend, a uncle, a brother. I did not know a person in prison. And so these 1,500 men, most of them on the yard, it was recreation time. I'm thinking, uh-oh, I'm in trouble so I had to think real fast. I know I didn't have the the, the muscle that these other individuals have. I didn't have the friends and the, the click that these other individuals would run with. I just had myself. One of the first things I did was not play tough, as to not to invite trouble and to really use my head. When I saw lures and traps of, you know, come over here, meet me over here, I would decide not to. I did meet a couple friends early on or associates who seemed to be good guys, who made bad decisions, saw the goodness in me and pulled me up earlier and gave me the five or six, seven-pointers to avoid to make sure that I can have a successful bit, that I could do this time with as little amount of trouble as possible. I saw violence, I saw assaults, I saw stabbings. I mean, you name it, I saw it, and I just would use my head. I would often tell myself, intelligence over emotion, so I would try not to respond emotionally, even when I was being punked a couple of times, which they would call punked, punked out of my seat, told to get up from ha- having breakfast because this was their table, but they were sitting at the table over the day before. They said, well, we want this table today. And so you're forced to either confront that or get up and stand by the island where you get your uh, tray from and eat at the island. I did that for a couple of days until a couple, again, good friends came or associates that came and said, no, you can sit at our table. Overall, through the 23 years, it was my faith that I survived off of. It was the idea that I was innocent that I survived of. It was the idea of my family who I left behind, my kids who I left behind. I wanted to commit suicide. I contemplated suicide on many occasions, but what halted those actions and behavior was seeing my family on the outside still needing me and wanting me to be there. There's less than a 1% chance of ever being successful on appeal when you're fighting wrongful convictions. And people will tell me to give it up. Ricky, it's a 1% chance. And I say, yeah, but you didn't say there was a no percent chance. So I did not want to understand as much how the 99% lost. I wanted to understand more of how did the 1% win. And that's what I would be guided by for those 23 years until we was uh, successful in becoming among that 1% and winning.
3: Wow. There was absolutely no, you had a much better than 1% chance of being killed while you are in prison. Yeah. It's a miracle that you never did decide to take your own life, uh, as so many people do in those facilities, wrongfully convicted or even people who were not wrongfully convicted. But you stood strong. Somehow or other, you found the will to live to learn and to fight and, and fight you did. And fortunately you were able to get the attention of the people that could help you. And of course now I'm talking about the Midwest Innocence Project. Oh yeah. Because Trisha Bushnell, I mean, Google this,
0: (laughs) Google (laughs) her
3: because if you, I think if you look up doesn't fuck around, you know, hers might be one of the first names that comes up. I mean, <laughs> when she gets involved, this is when things can really turn. And I encourage people to join me in supporting the Midwest Innocence Project. They are one of the oh, yeah. best in the country, best in class. We'll put a link in the, in the bio of the episode for people who want to donate. So Trisha Bushnell and Rachel Wester.
4: Oh yeah. And Professor Sean O'Brien, who was also a great part of the legal team, often led the legal team. Oh yeah. Like
3: like the freaking Avengers came in, right? And, yeah. and it's it's a miracle that they did.
4: I lost eleven times before I won my very last appeal. Appeal after appeal after appeal. Everyone is good as the next. During the appeals process, that whole twenty-three years. My lawyer stayed on this guy, Richard Harris, and they were successful in being able to get this witness to expose his lies. I mean, riddled, riddled. Every time they talked to him, it was something different. And they said, Ricky, we got him. He comes to court and any blind jurist, a judge, will be able to see that this guy is not credible and that the conviction should not stand, particularly since your conviction was solely based on this lone eyewitness testimony. And so my final appeal, that 12th appeal in April of 2019, this Richard Harris came to court.
3: So you're at this hearing, Richard Harris is getting ready to be torn to shreds by your, well, dream team. And then something totally unexpected happens.
4: We was prepared to just show all the the inaccuracies and and, and straight out lie. We had a chart 15 inconsistencies, eight straight out lies, and we had the chart to match on this page and this deposition, and and he was toast. But before we can really even get to that, he had a conscience, and he came clean. He testified that he lied and that it wasn't me. He testified that he knew it was the good speeds and that he picked me because there was no harm. But if he identified the good speeds, they would come after him and get him. So he was willing to lie. When the state attorneys general try to get up and rehabilitate his testimony, Richard Hare, it was in the movies. It's like a movie. He snapped. I'm sick of this. You're not scaring me. I'm not scared of you anymore. And he, he stood up to, I'm doing the right thing today. And I'm adding some words in, but it was, it was a flare. It was everybody in the courtroom was looking, including the judge. He's innocent. And y'all should let him go. Now I'm done with this. And he began to break down and cry. And he looked over wow. at me and uh, he said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. And he got up and ran. he didn't even get dismissed from the witness box. And he just got up and uh, ran out of the courtroom. So,
3: Wow, that is super dramatic. And by the way, it's hard not to think about the fact that this guy who led a hard life, I'm sure, and, you know, had to stay alive that almost quarter century before he finally came clean. If he would have died or, or, you know, know, or or something else happened to him or become incapacitated somehow or moved away where they couldn't find him, then you would be still in prison now and for the rest of your life. It all hung on that little thread, right? Yeah.
4: It is a very strong likelihood. Yeah. Yeah. And I was always nervous about that. Fortunate for me and uh, our legal team, that wasn't the case and we didn't have to suffer such a a devastating blow.
3: And in the end, Judge Atkins ruled that the evidence, and this is a direct quote from the judge, establishes innocence from multiple angles. End quote. Mike dropped. The evidence, he said, showed that you were not involved, that your alibi was truthful, and that the inescapable conclusion was exactly what was known from the very beginning, which was that Bryant and Bridges were murdered by the Goodspeeds and by Merrill.
4: When I got the legal call, there was an indication that the judge uh, was going to rule in our favor just by the questions he was asking both parties as he was preparing his ruling, the emails he would send them. He has to send it to both sides. And so we was reading the tea leaves. If, if he was going to say no, he wouldn't be asking us for this. If he was going to say yes, he would be asking us for this. He's asking us for this. But we never fully knew. And so I was working out that day on August 14th, 2019. They said, you have a legal call. I called my lawyers and Trish and Rachel was on that phone. When two or more lawyers on the phone, it usually has been bad news. Only talk to one when it's just an update or some brief. So I did not know, uh oh, what's going here? And so they was like, hey, buddy, how's it going? And sometimes they'll do that, too, to prepare me for the shocking news or the bad news. And I said, I'm doing fine. I said, tell me what's going on. They said, well, hold on. Let me get the rest of the lawyers on the phone as well. That made me kind of feel upbeat. I said, the rest of the lawyers? She said, yeah, we're waiting for Cindy, Cindy Dodge, and Sean O'Brien. I said, oh, this is good news in my mind. And so they all got on the call, all four of them, me, and nobody wanted to lead. Uh, So I just, I said, hey, somebody tell me, please, what's going on? And Sean O'Brien said, Ricky, you know what's going on. And Cindy Dodge broke out. You're free. You're free. The judge has ordered you to go free. You're free, Ricky. Uh, and I just started crying. I just started crying the whole 20 minutes. They was telling me everything that was going to happen next. And I didn't hear none of it. Uh, I didn't hear none of it. I was crying so, so hard. Uh, but it was a whole different type of cry, Jason. And... Uh, that was the highlight. That was the highlight of my 23-year wrongful conviction, knowing that that was the day that I was about to be free again.
3: That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. What a what a beautiful description of an incredible moment, and what a profound experience for those lawyers. And for lawyers who are listening, we have a lot of lawyers that listen to this yeah, show. good and deal. Shout, shout out to all of you. And if any of you are thinking, hey, I've been thinking about taking a pro bono case, you know what? Yeah. Uh, Let's go, yeah. Because there's a lot of Ricky kids out there, and I'm sure you know where some of them are too, Ricky. And yeah. if people want to, people want to reach out to you. How can they contact you if they do want to get in touch with you for it? Any number of reasons. You have an email or something else, or Instagram.
4: I do. I have a website, ResilienceMode.com, where they can find me. There. I also have a link tree with, with a. Bunch of stuff that they can get a quick glance at who I am, what I've been up to. We'll put a link in the, the episode bio. Of- if I could just say, I actually went from being a client of the Midwest Innocence Project. I'm now a colleague of Trisha Bushnell. I love Trisha Bushnell. I am our community engagement manager. I've also been elevated through my work to serve on the Innocence Network Executive Board. I'm on the District Attorney's Advisory Board here in Kansas City, and I just was recently assigned to the Exoneree Policy Council up in New York with Rebecca Brown and Olivia Barnes. And so I went from being underneath the problem to trying to be a part of the solution. I speak all across the country, sharing my cautionary tale. I just started training prosecutors uh, last year, last October. We're planning to take that and expand it even more where other prosecutors to learn the pitfalls of wrongful convictions and have some proximity to innocence. A lot of prosecutors do not have proximity to innocence, and we want them to have that experience with the idea that perhaps it would influence or change their opinion as to how they do business when it comes to these cases that come before them. So I'm happy to be home, and I love collaborating. And you could just reach out and say, hey, let's collab. I'm always open to that. So I'm very passionate about this work.
3: Incredible. Well, uh, I know I speak for everyone in our audience and our staff on our team here at Wrongful Conviction Podcasts, and the whole Lava for Good team and everyone in the Innocence Movement just wishing you every blessing in the world. It's inspiring to see you doing what you're doing. So now we turn to our closing of the show, which is appropriately called Closing Arguments. This is the part where I turn my microphone off. Kick back in my chair with my headphones on, turn the volume up a little bit, and just listen to anything else you want to share with me and our incredible audience.
4: Yeah, I appreciate that. Jason, first and foremost, a real special shout out to the uh, entire, like you said, the entire wrongful conviction podcast team who's doing this work, raising awareness about wrongful convictions is so important. Uh, we need this podcast. The world need this podcast 100% because people are not aware enough about the issues surrounding wrongful convictions. That has become my life work. Since I came home, I hit the ground running, raising my voice for those who is voiceless to raise awareness about wrongful convictions. I've testified before policymakers twice, again, participating in various councils, committees, executive boards, social media. I quickly learned how to use social media and began to create content that was designed to raise awareness. I've been to 24 states since I've been home in three years. As we travel across the country, what I'm constantly learning is people are not aware of wrongful convictions. They have not heard enough about the issue. Anytime we get to get in this space and actually educate ourselves about The different type of issues surrounding wrongful convictions, the different type of cases surrounding wrongful convictions. And any time we can leave, hopefully today the audience will leave feeling inspired, moved and motivated to do more, to get more involved, then we're doing our job and we get to do it together. So that's what I would say to the audience. And once again, thank you, Jason, Connor, the rest of the team for having this platform that we can come on here and then we get to educate and inspire
3: together. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Jeff Clyburn, and Kevin Wardis, with research by Lila Robinson. The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph, Be sure to follow us on Instagram at wrongful conviction on Facebook at wrongful conviction podcast and on Twitter at wrong conviction, as well as at lava for good on all three platforms. You can also follow me on both TikTok and Instagram at it's Jason Flom. Wrongful conviction is a production of lava for good podcast in association with signal company number one.
0: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce.